Welcome to Resistance Radio. I'm John Kane. I am your host, and of course, as always, I am really happy to be here. Uh, I've got a, got a discussion that may sound familiar because I've talked about these issues before, but, you know, there, there's something necessary about distinguishing what racism and what genocide actually are. So that's, that's what we're going to do today. That's what the intent of the program is, is today. Um, but let me begin again by reminding people that that this program, Resistance Radio, is on um, listener-supported radio. We are carried by WBAI, and we've been carried by WBAI for a long time. So we've been uh, a part of that uh, broadcast grid for, for many, many years. And in and, and, and not so many years, I, we have been a part of the WPFW um, lineup as well. So I want to ask those, those of you who listen to this program, broadcast to this program on WBAI to go to the pledge line, go to 212-209-2950, that's 212-209-2950, or go online to give to WBAI.org and make a contribution in the name of this program. Uh, they have a tower fund drive that, uh, that they've been doing. They've been trying to you know, build up enough reserves to, uh, to cover uh, the tower rental for our transmission at, uh, at Times Square, which is more costly for WBAI than, than for most of the Pacifica stations. But that doesn't mean stations like WPFW do, don't need your support as well. They certainly do. We, again, we're listener-supported radio. So if you're listening in Washington, D.C., then I want you to go to their pledge line, which is 202-588-9739, or go online to WPFW fm.org and you can follow the prompts on either one of these websites to uh, to make contributions you can become a sustaining member where you make a uh, donation each month um, sign up for it and it'll come out of your credit card or your checking account uh, each month you don't have to fuss with it uh, and it can be a small amount it can be ten dollars a month and and that for us it gives us money that we can count on for the operations of the of these stations so I do ask that if you're listening to us on these uh, radio stations, that you support your radio stations. And if you're listening online, whether you're listening to me as I stream this thing on Facebook or as I put it up as a podcast, look, feel free to support these stations. This program would not exist without having um, a, a broadcast partner or a, a few broadcast partners. So even if you're not listening to us on the radio stations, uh, I would encourage you to support a radio station that's willing to, again, to provide space for, for a voice that is uh, oftentimes marginalized. Not just my voice, but the, the native voice. So, um, again, I, I really implore that you, uh, that you support these radio stations. As I said, this program is posted up as a podcast. Uh, you can find Resistance Radio with John Kane on any of your, the major podcast platforms. So you can either just Google search it, or if you've got, a, again, a podcast platform that you use, uh, just search for Resistance Radio with John Kane. I would also encourage you to search for my other podcast, which is Let's Talk Native with John Kane. Uh, the the shows are similar. This one I, I is dedicated to do every week because of being on uh, on radio. Uh, the other uh, uh, Let's Talk Native is oftentimes done to address something that's very topical or contemporary, so it may not you know have a program every week, but. Um, I do encourage you to listen to both. And, of course, you can also go to my YouTube channel, which is Let's Talk Native TV. Um, many of these programs get posted up on, uh, on YouTube, and I do have some short-form videos that address everything from Columbus to Doctrine of Discovery to gaming to the mascot issue. And I encourage you to not only check out those videos, but share those videos. And I think this is the way that we educate. All right, and educating is what, what I plan to do today. Because there's confusion. There's confusion about, about what racism is and about what, what genocide is. So let me start with racism because it, it amazes me. Every time I hear a white person call a person of color a racist, mostly because we bring up racism, <laughs> um, that, it, 
you know, it just, it just amazes me that there is such an ignorance associated with racism. Now, whether you believe in racial theory, you know, uh, and whether race is even a thing, um, whether you believe that or not, racism is a thing. And, you know, so one of the definitions of racism, and, and look, you can go online and find many, but I want to talk about really defining what racism is. And racism is the belief that different races possess different and distinct characteristics, abilities, or qualities, so as to distinguish them as inferior or superior to one another. So it's the belief that you could determine the qualities of a human being by the perception of race. Now, it doesn't automatically mean that you hate people of another race. It just means that you, you're passing a judgment. So, and, and I think it's important for people to know that because when we see these acts of violence committed against um, people because of race and because of racism, it's, it's oftentimes too easy to suggest that racism is about hate and violence. And, it, and it's really a much broader issue than that. And, and of course, what gets missed when you look at the acts of, a, of an individual, like the individual who came to Buffalo to kill black people, that was a, a lone gunman shaped by probably years of some levels of indoctrination about racism, but his act was a singular act. It was him. He did it. it is, his act was, may have been influenced by systemic racism, racism that was allowed to continue in his grade school, maybe even his elementary school, but his high school, in the circle of friends or associates that he had, where maybe the workplace, but certainly with by education and governance and all kinds of there's all kinds of evidence or, or or fact that racism is systemic. And by systemic I mean it is embedded in the institutions of the United States and other countries. But I'm talking about here right now. Certainly Canada and the United States are very similar in this regard. So whatever I'm talking about applies both in the US and, and, and Canada. Racism is systemic. It and where we see the evidence of racism and the, and the systemic nature of it, we can, we can see it simply by, by looking at a prison population. The fact that, that people of color, not just black people, but people of color are locked up at a disproportionate rate um, to their racial de designation suggests that there's a problem there. And, and it may not be written into law. There's no law that says you have to black, lock up black people or people of color at a higher rate than white people. There's no law that says that. But the laws are, have, have racism embedded in them enough. And, and the easiest example is when people looked at the sentencing guidelines for cocaine versus crack cocaine. And because crack cocaine was, uh, was really introduced and pushed in the black, uh, you know, black neighborhoods and, and amongst black societies, it was you could lock up a black man with with crack cocaine for a much longer period of time than you would uh, than you would lock up a rich white boy with with with, with regular cocaine, and and there was no reason to distinguish sentencing guidelines based on that other than the, the, again the racial connotation. So, but you could do that and never mention race. So, but that that's an example of it. But and racism is about power, and what happens. It, when you have power and the ability to, uh, to um, embed racism in the systems, not just of power, but in the systems in general, the systems of society, the, the institutions of society, you, you end up having a disproportionate, you have that power not asserted, you have supremacy that is created by racism. Let me say it again. So you have a supremacy a racial supremacy that is created by racism. Not by race, but by racism. And let me explain. I mean, if you can make um, white people more powerful because all of the systems and everything from the, the, the justice system, the legal system beyond the justice system, the lawmakers, politicians, judges, the lawyers who represent even people of color, if, if you embed racism into all of those things, 
you can disproportionately lift up white people and created, create an, a system of, supremacy, of white supremacy. And, and that's what has existed in the United States for hundreds of years. But it's not just governance. It's not just the justice system and the, and the governing systems. It's the financial institutions. It's, it's what banking, you know, how banking can skew their, their regulations about who will get a loan, who's going to get a loan at what interest rate, all of that stuff. Um, you, it, it's, it's tied to housing. It's tied to um, the, the entertainment industry, not just media. I'm not just talking about how news is broadcast, but I mean how movies are produced, how books are written, how television is done. This idea of stereotyping people, stereotypes create, uh, that, that are maintained by the dominant culture, which is white, is an example of systemic racism. I mean, the, the fact that you've got schools that are, and, and I mean predominantly white schools that can use native mascots is an example of racism. It's also an example of institutional racism. It's also an example of systemic racism. It's also an example of how education promotes racism by promoting stereotypes. So it's education, it's entertainment, it's the media, it's the financial institutions, it's, it's capitalism. It's all of these things that have some element of racism embedded into it. And it's real hard to pull it out. I mean, and, and the crazy part is, it's much harder to pull it out for black people. Yep, I said that. And, and the reason is because th there has been a painstaking effort to never distinguish black people in any of these institutions um, and, and do it in a, in a derogatory way. However, <laughs> native people, it's real easy to do it. I mean, you know, the, the, you can pass laws specifically about native people. And, and, I, and I've cited it before. I talked about the Indian Gaming Regulatory Act. That was a law that took something away from native people and gave it to the white power structures in the state, in the federal government. But see, what happens is you have, you have law, then you have regulations that are how the law is implemented, and then you have policy, which it, policy oftentimes is more about the discretion. You know, well, what leeway is there within the law and the regulations associated with that law that allows some people to skate and some people not to? See, and this is where the the influence of racism doesn't have to be defined, but, but the cause and effect is there. That's why you have a, a larger prison population of black people and people of color than you do of white people. Not because white people don't commit crimes. I mean, it's, it, and not because white people don't use drugs. No, it, it's because they're treated different. You know, and, and they're lawyered up differently. They're defended differently. I mean, when you have a whole system involved with law enforcement that allows so much discretion by a police officer to use deadly force or, you know, or near deadly force, you know, physical violence against somebody simply because they fear, they, 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 they fear something. They perceived a threat. There doesn't have to be a threat. I mean, there, this is the way that you can build racism into policing without ever having to say it. So, again, racism is about power and it's about the systemic nature of racism in all of the institutions of, of the United States and Canada. But racism, again, isn't just about mistreating people in a violent or in an otherwise perceived oppressive manner. Racism is about stratification. It's about acknowledging that, there's, that there are pecking orders within this perception of race. White people on top, black people, and people of color on the bottom. Some, more, some below others, and you can see that you know, with, with statistics. I mean, native people, we're a small population, so we are oftentimes ignored in, in many of these um, uh, assessments, like death by cop, for instance. I mean, the perception that most people have is that black people are killed at a disproportionately higher rate than, than white people. That's true. 
by cops, that is. But what is not really known or acknowledged is that as a percentage of our population, Native people are actually experienced death by cop at a higher rate than black people, generally, you know, overall. In the age group of 16 to 21, a black man um, surpasses a, a Native person, a Native man, in, uh, in that percentage of the population death by cop. So we aren't really noticed in this because our numbers are so small. So, I mean, look, we only, rep we only represent less than 1% of the U.S. population. I mean, there's some numbers that say there's as many as 7 million Native people in the United States. Well, yeah, that's a lot of 23andMe and a lot of, you know, my grandma told me that, you know, you know that I have Native ancestry or whatever else. And if you look at Native people, especially Native people living on Native territory, we're talking about a small, a small population, you know, probably 2 million. And of that 2 million, probably less than half live on Native territories. I mean, we're talking about less than, a, you know, around about a half a percent, uh, you know, yeah, a half of 1% is what the population that, that we write. I mean, we used to be all 100% of the population, right? <laughs> well, that's not, that doesn't exist. And why does that exist? Well, we're going to talk about more of that when we get to, uh, to, uh, to genocide. But if you are white and you have a black friend and you mention that all the time as proof that you're not racist, that's evidence of racism. <laughs> and especially if you have to rave about the qualities of your black friend as if it distinguishes them or her from other black people. I mean, if you've got to, if, if you immediately say, well, that black person was very articulate. Well, that's racist <laughs> because why wouldn't he be? Why wouldn't she be? So if you look at a native person like myself and you think that I'm well-spoken, the assumption is that I shouldn't be because I'm native. See, this is the subtlety of racism. Now, and look, you can genuinely have a black friend and still be a racist. And it doesn't even mean that you perceive yourself as superior to your black friend. But you're almost looking at the fact that that person is your friend and has been able to, to breach that friendship circle of yours in spite of being black, then you're, you're still harboring a racist view. And, and you don't have to mistreat people to be a racist. You can just view them as lesser. You can just view them as beneath you. You don't have to treat them any harmful way. But this is, you know, and, and now I know this sounds like I'm really getting into the weeds, right? Because if you don't see an act of racism, if you don't see a behavior that is racist, then does racism exist? Well, this is how this stuff becomes embedded into so many of the institutions, because you don't have to bring it up. You don't have to take a specific racist behavior upon yourself to harbor some elements of racism. Now, again, I'm not saying that all white people are racist, but all white people do enjoy white privilege, which is created because of systemic racism. White privilege exists because the systems favor white people. Now, to me, the most laudable white people are the ones who are prepared to use their white privilege to combat white privilege and to, and to combat racism. And most people won't. And, you know, and, and I see this all the time, especially in my battles over the mascot issue. I know a whole lot of people, friends of mine, people that I've known my, you know, sometimes my whole life, who don't want to take a stand on the, on the mascot issue because of what it's going to do to them in their community, in their white community. I can have the conversation, and they know I'm right, right? I mean, I can have, you know, lay it all out, what, you know, overwhelming majority of Native people view on, on this and, and what the psychologists and the child development experts and, and how Native people are singularly used in this regard. I can, I can lay it all out. I can talk about history. I can talk about residential schools existing while, little, while white kids got to play Indian and Native kids got beaten for being Native people. I can bring it all up. Talk about L. Frank Baum and his, and his desire to exterminate us so we can live in the memories of white people and be 
praised as the grand kings of the forest and the plain after we're gone. I can talk about all that stuff and how it relates to, to the mascot issue. And, and people will be saddened by that conversation. But they still won't take up, uh, take up the charge. And, you know, so it is, really, it is possible to understand that racism could exist only along this notion of stratification. And by stratification, you know, we, we see that in class, right? We always rate, you know, look, there's all kinds of, what income level are you? There's all kinds of systemic ways of stratifying native pe or, or people, I'm seeing, people in general. But racial stratification, which, which kind of selects, again, by the definition, distinguishing characteristics that are assumed to be determined by race and place that in that inferiority, superiority spectrum. That's the, the, uh, the stratification. Now, nobody is necessarily bound by the existing of racism to never be successful or to never achieve um, acceptance outside of their, their racial de designation, at least some level of acceptance. And, and we see that. You know, Barack Obama became the president. Kamala Harris, the vice president. Um, Deb Haaland, the first native um, cabinet secretary. No, so there are ceilings that get broken, glass ceilings that get broken, right? But that doesn't mean that any of those folks, Harris, Obama, Haaland, it doesn't mean they still aren't going to experience racism. I mean, that's, that's the, that is what racism is. Now let me talk a little bit about genocide. Because genocide is complete is something completely different. Although we could argue that many of the genocides that have taken place take place specifically because of overt racism. But you know what? Genocide can exist amongst the same racial designation of people. You can have white people committing genocide against other white people. It's happened all the time. It, you know, we see it in Europe all the time, right? I mean, we get into this debate, are Jewish people white people? Well, Jewish people were the victims of the Holocaust. And, and those are white people killing white people. We see the, the, um, what the United Kingdom, what, what Britain did to the Irish and to the Scottish. I mean, those were, that was genocide, yet those were white people. So genocide doesn't, you know, genocide... And, and I'll give a definition. This genocide means any of the following acts committed with the intent to destroy in whole or in part a national, ethnical, racial, or religious group. And those acts are killing members of the group, causing serious bodily or mental harm to members of the group, deliberately inflicting on the group conditions of life calculated to bring about its physical destruction. Imposing measures intended to prevent births within the group and forcibly transferring children of the group to another group. So those five behaviors, those five actions that are committed with the intent, and you know, it's always you know, this, this idea that intent is there. Because, I mean, if, if you harm somebody and you can claim that you had no intent to do it or, or you had no intent to cause the physical destruction of a, uh, of a group. You, you can kind of skirt around the definition of genocide. But again, because I want to have a conversation about racism and genocide, you can have an overtly racist society, and certainly the United States has had, and in many places, in many ways, still does have. And we can argue about whether it still exists or not, but... I'll win that argument. That doesn't mean that the United States is committing genocide against everybody that they commit racist acts against. Because the thing about that stratification that I talked about with racism, many societies depend on that. They depend on having the working class, right? And if, and, and if that working class might fall along the lines of, 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 of racial lines or perceived racial lines, I mean, look, 
Europe was famous for this, the, one of the biggest lies ever told, that somehow God bestowed the, the power to rule over other people among certain families. That, that's the, what the monarchy was, right? The, the, the throne, the crown, the king, the queen. That somehow they were chosen by God to rule over, and, and that it was some sort of divine um, designation of power. Of course, that was a lie. You know, most of these, most religion is is built on a house of cards. But certainly, that element of, of any religion is built on built on a lie. So there, you you see absolutely this hierarchy that is that is you know been set up, and it's not necessarily along racial lines where. Racism became a, a really big deal was when Europe, the powers of Europe, took their sense of supremacy throughout the planet and then ran into people of different colors, you know, Africa, you know, uh, Asia, Australia, the quote-unquote Americas, our, our homes. That's when this notion of supremacy became specifically white supremacy. And it was also oftentimes tied to religion. So it was Christian white supremacy. That's why you had the doctrine of Christian discovery. Some people call it the doctrine of discovery, but to be clear, the doctrine of discovery was based on the Christian nations of Europe being authorized by the Pope or popes to make certain claims based on them being the good Christian nations. And those powers were given to them to, to subject people to slavery, take property, take possessions, take land, commit murder. Racism does not require an intent to destroy in whole or in part a, uh, a people. Racism certainly contributes to that. And, and, I, and, and I know there's a lot of conversations about what genocide is. I mean, for me, when I look at the definition of genocide, those five things, killing people, causing serious bodily or mental harm, uh, deliberately inflicting on the group conditions calculated to bring about its physical destruction, um, imposing measures intended to prevent births, and then taking children, that sounds like this definition of genocide was written specifically because of what the United States did to Native people as it related to residential schools. It wasn't. And in fact, for the United States, it's a terrible inconvenience <laughs> that it lines up so, so, so well with what they did to Native children. And, and to be clear, the genocide was committed against us as a people. It was done by going after our children. It was done by targeting our children as the means to not only depopulate, uh, uh, depopulate our, our people, we experienced the largest period of depopulation, a population reduction, during the 150 years of residential schools. We experienced the largest period of land loss. And because these schools, their stated intent was to kill the Indian, save the man. They, what they claim that means was to kill the Indian within us. Not necessarily to kill us specifically. Although the amount of deaths that took place at these residential schools would suggest that it might have been an either-or proposition. We're either going to kill the, 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 the entire person or we're going to kill a part of that person. Which is why I say our people were killed in those residential schools. Some were killed completely and some had a part of them killed. And even if you survived residential schools with some semblance of your native identity intact, it doesn't mean that you didn't, that you didn't suffer. It means that you probably suffered more. It means that you did have a part of you killed. And among the things that took place at residential schools was not just the idea of sterilizing women, girls, but by taking children away from communities. And, and at some level, 85% of all children, native children, were being, were being pulled out of, uh, out of their homes. It was a law in Canada that all children had to go to residential schools, whether they all 
actually did go, but but in the United States, it was calculated that eighty five percent of all children at some point was were being committed to these residential schools. So you took away not just that thread between child and mother and child and father, child and grandmother, child and grandfather, which I know how important it is to me. You not only took that away, but you took away the whole skill set and the process of teaching that skill set to nurture, to, to bear children, to raise children. So it wasn't just that you sterilized Native girls. You eliminated the possibility for wholesome families to, uh, to, to, to continue. And now, I'm not suggesting you had that the United States hadn't done some terrible things leading up to and, and throughout this period of residential schools with alcohol and with starvation and with you know forced relocation, murders and massacres, all that stuff. No, it, residential schools wasn't the only form of genocide. It was just the most complete form of genocide that the United States committed. Now, again, I couldn't talk about genocide without talking about it, making it personal, so, so I have. But to be clear, genocide has been committed in places that there was no racial designation. That designation might have been because of religion or national or ethical reasons. You know, so th there's a lot of ways that one group of people not just a racially superior or perceived racially superior people, but a people who had the power. See, genocide is committed by nations, by societies. Genocide isn't, isn't com committed by an 18-year-old with an AR-15. A racial act, a racist act, may be committed by that, that, that individual. But genocide... Is, a, is, is again, it's, it's systemic. It's about creating and committing acts as a part of a, of a policy or a plan with a commitment and an intent to destroy a people. Look, you can be racist as hell and have no intent to commit genocide. And you can also be racist and not hate a person. You, you know, I mean, we could argue whether Thomas Jefferson liked, loved, cared for, you know, you know, had some affection towards um, Sally Hemings, towards his, a woman that he impregnated, that, that he had sex with. Now, if you own that woman, that's considered a sex slave. It doesn't matter whether she was, you know, whether the sex was consensual or not, because that's like having sex with a child. Does a child, can a child really consent? Can a slave really not consent? But did Thomas Jefferson like her? I, I mean, there's, there's probably some writings and there's probably some, some proof that he did like her. It doesn't mean that he wasn't racist as hell. It's not like he set her free. Even, even the children that he had with her were his, were his house Negroes, were, were his slaves. So you can love, like, honor, respect all kinds of people throughout history who, ha who are distinct from you in terms of the perception of race. You can love the speeches of Martin Luther King. You can love... The, the, the skill set that Michael Jordan demonstrated on the basketball court, or LeBron James, or, or, or anybody, Jesse Owens, Jim Thorpe. You can think Jim Thorpe was the greatest athlete in the world, which he was. <laughs> but it doesn't, mean that, that you, it, doesn't, that it doesn't mean that you can't still be racist. Because if part of what, what amazes you about the success of somebody of color is the fact that they're somebody of color, then you have a, a, already have a preconceived, preconceived supposition that the people are inferior, and when somebody rises above, when Oprah Winfrey comes out of that group, wow, look at that, see? See, I'm not a racist, I love Oprah. Well, no, that's not what it means. So, look, I know that there's conversations about genocide and there's conversations about racism, but 
it, it just amazes me that we can exist today in this age of information and have so many people not know what they mean. Like I said, if you're a white person and you call a person of color, a native person, a black person, whoever, a racist because they so-called they because they supposedly played the race card. Well, I'm gonna say it again. Not all white people are racist, but all racists are white people. Now I, I know I gotta qualify that. There are people of color who support white supremacy, but it doesn't make them white. It means that they have found niches within these oppressive systems that have allowed them to, to have achievements. I mean, I, I've called out Crystal People Stokes. I called her the black white supremacist. Now, I didn't call her racist because she doesn't perceive herself by virtue of her race, her, of her race, to be superior over others. But you know what? She supports white supremacy. And she supports it through her politics. And, and look, I'm not saying every Democrat is a white supremacist. But if you're a person of color and you're devoting more of your efforts towards advancing a political party, Democrats or Republicans, then you are protecting your own people or other people who are marginalized. I'm sorry, then, then you are essentially endorsing and complicit with the power structures that have white people at the, at the top of those, uh, those parties. <clears throat> That's the way it works, right? That's the way it works. Deb Haaland was named a cabinet secretary by, uh, by Joe Biden. And that's good for Deb Haaland. But that didn't do anything for us as Native people. And, and her success, even in that job, is going to be measured on how she serves the president of the United States, a white guy. How she serves the government of the United States, a government that is essentially dominated by white people. When she was elected to Congress from New Mexico, most of her votes came from white people. Why? <laughs> because she was a good candidate for them. Now, I'm not saying Native people didn't vote for her. I've heard people say, well, Native people made the difference on whether Joe Biden got elected or not. Well, I find that really, really hard to believe. In fact, I call BS on that one. We're a small population. There's almost no place that we can tip the scales unless the balance is so even between the right and the left and all Native people are going to vote on one side or the other of that spectrum to tip the scales, that's the only condition that, that we could do that. And if we do that, then we've essentially surrendered our claim to autonomy because we're saying we're going to use your system. And this is where, you know, there are many of us. Not, I'm not even going to say that we're the majority. I think the outliers amongst Native people are the ones who say, no, I'm not an American. I'm not a Canadian. I'm... Mohawk, I'm Gunyagahaga, I'm Ongluhunwe. That's what I am. Now, that doesn't mean that I'm not impacted by what happens in American or Canadian politics. It's, uh, absolutely. I mean, do I think Justin Trudeau is better than Stephen Harper? Yes, but do I, think, do I like Justin Trudeau? No. Do I think Joe Biden is better than Donald Trump? Yes. Do I like Joe Biden? No. And my criticisms of a Harper or a Trump are not to be interpreted as praise for a Trudeau or, or a Biden. Or if my criticism of Biden or Trudeau should not be interpreted as, as praise for Trump or, you know, or Harper. <laughs> so this is where, where it's tough, because when, when you're a real outlier, like many Native people are, we do weigh in on the conversation. But the interpretation is, if we hold a view, there's more interpretation going to to what we're, um, what we're not condemning than what we're actually condemning. So, but again, I think it's important that people realize that there are people who achieve in spite of their racial designation or their, the perception of race. 
There are people who, I mean, Eric Adams, mayor of, uh, mayor of New York City. But we're gonna, we can have a big debate on, on how much he is representing black people. Is he really representing black people? I, I know there's an awful lot of black people who are not happy with, with some of Adams' policies. Byron Brown, the mayor of Buffalo, out my neck of the woods here. Is he representing black people? I think he's pretty much, I mean, when a black candidate ran against him and got the Democratic, Democratic nomination, white people rallied, you know, rallied with him, even from the right. Even the Republicans rallied to, to get Byron Brown elected. Don't tell me he's representing black people. He's representing white people. And he's representing white people on the right. So we have people who, who achieve these things, but to, to achieve these things, they have to pander because of racism, because of systemic racism, they have to pander to the dominant culture, the white dominant culture. And where does, so how does that impact genocide? Well, genocide is about the destruction of a people, in whole or in part. One of the, the biggest issues that I, that I have with any conversation about residential schools, there's a real hesitance in calling it what it is, which is, again, the most clearly defined act of genocide that the United States has ever committed, because it hits all five of those things. Um, preventing births, taking children, um, in, inflicting harm, bodily harm and uh, mental harm on, a, on people of the group, killing people of the group, and deliberately creating the condition. I mean, residential schools, ex just the, the existence of residential schools was the deliberate um, condition created to calculate our destruction. I mean, that's, that's what its purpose was. So, I mean, residential schools represents genocide in the, most, in, in, the, in the most clearest fashion. But as genocide is addressed, and as it was addressed in Canada, and as it's being addressed in the United States, it's being looked at as crimes against children. And it is that. But there, it was a crime against a people, or many peoples, really, because Native people are not a, a, a monolith. Five, six, seven, eight hundred distinct native peoples had this genocide committed against them. So it's a, it's a crime committed by the nation state, by the United States and Canada and other places against an indigenous population. It's a crime committed by the country, by the government, by the politicians, by the churches that were in, uh, you know, enlisted to, to operate these schools. It was, a, it was a crime committed in a wholesale manner. And it was committed by committing individual crimes to children and to families stripped of their children. But you can't address it by simply saying, well, we're going to um, write checks to the survivors of residential schools. That's why I say, if we don't have restoration of land and autonomy as a part of a so-called reconciliation, and, and reconciliation is a terrible word. You can't reconcile, you know, genocide. How do you reconcile genocide? Well, you can't reconcile it, but you can restore some of what your genocide did. You can't bring children back to life. And you probably can't heal the trauma committed by the survivors of residential schools or the descendants of those survivors. What's going to heal us is getting our autonomy back, getting our lands back. All of it? No, probably not. But having some restoration of what the genocide intended to do, that's going to be part of the healing process. Because if you're just going to write checks to people, <laughs> that doesn't solve a damn thing. I'm not saying don't write checks. I'm not asking for one, but I'm not saying don't write checks. 
But if that's all you do, that's not going to address what the genocide's intent was, which was to destroy us. Today, I have to have a much longer conversation with an academic, a politician, a judge, anybody, about not being an American, not being a congressman's constituent or a senator's constituent or an assembly person's constituent. I remember, remember when I was addressing the floor tax issue back you know, several, a couple of decades ago now, yeah, a decade or so ago, I remember talking to the congressman, Congressman Brian Higgins from, from the Buffalo area, and having this conversation, really long conversation, that no, I am not, he's not my congressman. And they said, well, where do you live? And I said, well, I live on the Cattaraugus Territory of the Seneca Nation. And they said, well, that's in his district. I said, well, no, it's not. He said, well, which side of the river do you live on? I said, well, I live on the, on the, on the other side of the river from Buffalo. And he said, oh, yeah, that's the, well, that's the next county. No, it's not. The county starts at the edge of our territory. But to, but to suggest and, and to have to go through this painstaking conversation and then to say, look, the reason I'm talking to, you, to this congressman is because he voted for a certain bill and his actions still impact me whether I'm one of his constituents or not, because there's, the way laws are being interpreted, we're being taxed. So, I mean, to go through this long conversation and, and still never feel completely satisfied that I communicated to, to these folks that while I want to engage in a conversation with your elected officials, they are not my elected officials. Yeah, I would, I'd love to have a conversation with Deb Haaland. Not because she represents me or Joe Biden or Barack Obama or even Donald Trump. I would love to have a conversation. Not because they were my president. And I'd love to have a conversation with Kathy Hochul too, but not because she's my governor. So this is the difficulty because today it is still difficult for any American to understand a status that doesn't fit in their box. So if we don't fit in their box about what party, about what religion, about what district we, we live in, if you, if you say, no, I'm not a part of that, that's difficult. Generally speaking, most Americans believe or can acknowledge that Native people have some element of sovereignty. But that's because they don't know what sovereignty means. And you know what? In the UN Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous Peoples, I happen to have a copy right here. <laughs> sovereignty is not mentioned once in this document. Well, I'll take it back. It is mentioned once. But it's not talking about ours. It's talking about the fact that this Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous Peoples is not intended to violate the sovereignty of the nation states that they're trying to say need to follow these rules. They, will, they do talk about treaty acknowledged rights rather than treaty rights, which I think is a, is a big accomplishment. Because I don't want anybody to suggest that any rights that we have as Native people came from a treaty. They may be acknowledged in a treaty, but not granted there. They didn't come there, come from that. So we have a difficult time because, technically speaking, the United States does not recognize our distinction. They recognize some distinction, but then they try to frame it. In 1934, they, when they passed the Indian Reorganization Act, they redefined what a Native person was. And they said that we were a tribe, band, or nation of Indians subordinate to the laws of the United States. Now, we never agreed to that. In fact, 10 years earlier, when they declared we were U.S. citizens, they knew that we didn't agree to that. And that's why 10 years later, they tried to redefine this thing. But you can't strip away, I mean, that, that's, again, that's an act of genocide. Strip away our national character, our, our cultural existence, and say, okay, you're no longer a, um, 
we're not going to recognize you as, the, as a distinct people. Now you are an American citizen. Here, but we, we just passed a law and we signed it. Um, so now you're all American. You're a U.S. citizen. No. No, we're not. You can't do that. I mean, you can do it, but it doesn't have any, any real legal force. See, this is the conversation. See, this is still genocide. The failure for people to recognize our distinction is genocide. Now, creating policies and laws and behaviors that enable you to oppress us, that's racism. That's racism, but it's also racism that drives the genocide that is still ongoing towards Native people. But I think, I think it's important, and, and the reason I wanted to bring this up today, I think it's really important that people understand the overlap of racism and genocide and the distinction of the two. Because I hear people using these terms all wrong. Genocide is about the destruction of a people. Racism is about superiority, power, and one group having the power over another group. It may or may not lead to genocide. It may just lead to creating, keeping people at an inferior level to the, to the white supremacists that, that put those systems together. Because having that working class, having that stratification is a part of what has enabled white supremacy to, to not only exist, but to have some of it, the success that it's had. Look, I want to thank you for listening. Again, I, I hope that people will support the radio stations that, um, uh, that carry this program. Um, and so, I, again, support WBAI and WPFW. I appreciate it. I am John Kane, and this is Resistance Radio.